interestingly, um, and particularly for this audience, is is the treatment of, of carbon-intensive sectors, um, and that focus on on not wanting to have sol- solely paper decarbonisation of portfolios, but really to remain invested, um, to work with companies, and to support them on that transition. And if we think um, incumbents are actually, in many cases, very well positioned to transform their their business models and to emerge as as the leaders of the future. Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. I'm Alex Cameron, and I'm really pleased to be joined by Ava Jackson today. Ava is Managing Director of the Sustainable and Transition Solutions Group at BlackRock. And uh, this is probably the fourth attempt of mine to have her on the podcast because life is life and work is work, but I just couldn't be happier. Really glad to have you here, Ava. And today we're going to be talking a little about, uh, well, obviously BlackRock and their perspective on all things climate, but more specifically, climate metrics and how they can be used to catalyze investment flow. So probably unusually for DCAR, this is slightly broader than our usual industrial emissions focus, but still highly relevant to that. And again, Ava, so pleased to have you here. Maybe you can kick us off with, uh, you know, how have you reached this moment in time, both personally and professionally? I mean, fantastic company to be working for, amazing side of this whole climate debate to be working on. Give us your view of how you've how you've landed here. Firstly, thank you so much, Alex. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm so glad that we actually managed to make this happen. So I'm really happy to happy to be here today, um, and and as part of this podcast. So I lead the sustainability client team at, at BlackRock. Um, I joined BlackRock six years ago, having spent a decade in banking prior prior to that role. Um, as as many of those listening probably know, BlackRock is a, a global asset manager. We manage around 9.1 trillion in in assets under management across public and private markets. So really across the capital spectrum um, that uh, of financing solutions. And our role as an asset manager is is to be a fiduciary for our clients. So what that means is that we manage monies for our clients in line with the investment guidelines for our clients to build those portfolios and to build strategies to offer our clients with choice, but optimally achieve those optimal risk returns, which are resilient in in the long term. So we invest for the long term for for our clients. Now, my, my team and I do two things. So I lead a team of sustainability specialists across Europe, Middle East and Africa, so across the region. And and our our focus is supporting our clients in implementing sustainability into their portfolios. Now, our clients are asset owners. They can be wealth managers, official institutions, family offices, endowments, um, and the like. So very much a broad spectrum of clients that we serve. And they may have different motivations for investing in sustainability. And we work with our clients um, on those motivations and to implement sustainability into their portfolios. And then the second aspect of our role is is to work within ecosystems. And that means we represent our, our clients in those forums where it's important for us to have our clients' voices heard. So as an example, we sit on local industry bodies, the UK Investment Association Sustainability Committee being one, I sit on the Impact um, Investing Institute Advisory Council, and we have members sitting on various industry boards across across Europe, really with, with that focus on supporting the ecosystem in developing the sustainability ecosystem 
and representing our, our, our clients' voices in, in, in industry. Now, I, I love working in sustainability. It's, it's, it's a fantastic role and a fantastic place to be at the moment, but it is complex. It brings together that broad ecosystem, meaning regulators, industry, clients, companies, really working together to achieve um, certain goals and, and objectives. So very much a fast-moving pace. And then for you personally, I mean, you could have, with your background, you know, you could have landed in any number of kind of aspects of the work that either BlackRock or any other global asset manager does. Like, how did you, how did you come into sustainability? Has it been a long-term goal or is it, I don't know, is it, for some of the people I speak to, it just happened to be an opportunity that presented itself and they've stepped in. What's your personal story around this? Sure. So I think I think it was a little bit by chance and a little bit um, in terms of wanting to orient my career in a, in a different way. So I had worked on on the sell side for 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 a decade, um, and and I was very attracted to the buy side, given the long term nature of of investing. So I, I wanted to move to to the buy side to really um, take on that investor outlook, um, and and to think more about the investment thesis and more about those structural megatrends that, that exist um, in, in, in industry. Um, so that, that was the rationale for the move to the buy side. And at the moment I joined, it, it was in 2017. And sustainability was was beginning to really grow in terms of momentum. You know, of course, there, there'd been products for well over a decade, decade beforehand, but it was starting to enter, enter the mainstream. So if you think back to 2015, you had the Paris Agreement. You had then a slow upticking of companies and of countries beginning to adopt the commitments under the Paris Agreement, begin to make company pledges, investors begin to think through what does that mean for their sustainability propositions. So it was at, it was at that inflection point where it, it was about to increase in momentum and it, it was just such a good place to be um, in terms of the growth business because this was a need that our clients had and which was emerging and becoming more tangible as well as data becoming more tangible and as well as, as, well as that momentum um, over so really, it was it was kind of that mix between um, moving to uh, the buy side as well as moving right at that point where this was really the, the business which is probably moving at the, at the fastest pace. So you've kind of come into it, as you say, a really that's a really interesting point in time to sort of see, yeah, to be to see, but also to be part of really engineering what what sustainable finance really has come to mean. I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering the Decarb Connect podcast. Over the last few years, they've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience. And their skills and expertise mean that we get to concentrate exclusively on generating the content, the conversations that engage, inform and inspire. Let's sort of talk for a minute about BlackRock and the lens that it brings to sustainable investing. I mean, without doing the full BlackRock pitch, <laughs> what what would you say is the kind of the, the lens that you and the team, what, what is important within BlackRock about the way that you approach sustainable investment, which is, you know, there are so many, so many ways that different asset management, different financial companies come at this. What What's the story for you guys? 
Sure. So at, at BlackRock, we approach um, sustainability factors and climate risk in the same way that we approach traditional investing. So for us, this is very much the same approach that we apply across our investing business. And I, I think that's really important to highlight. We've touched a bit on, on the fiduciary role that we have. We've touched a bit on the client choice. But actually, if we think about our traditional investment business, the views that we take are underpinned by robust research, by data and by analytics. And we leverage the robust research, that same approach that we take in terms of research, the rigor, um, the approach to data, looking at the material, the, the material financial information that's relevant for a company valuation, looking at it from a sustainability perspective, there's material non-financial data points relevant for a company. So we approach, we, we apply really that lens of research, data and analytics, and that robust investment approach in it, across across our sustainability platform. So really, it's, I'd say that that's the overriding principle around BlackRock. As long-term investors, we are investing for that long-term um, and we're building those portfolios that are uh, adjusted for resilient risk returns. What that means is that we identify um, climate risk as, as an investment risk. We identify sustainability factors as, as an investment risk. So we research climate in the same way that we research market risk, that we research liquidity risk, those credit risk and the likes. So the traditional investment risk, we research climate in, in that same lens. Okay, so that's that's already kind of interesting because I feel I mean I'm I'm sure I'm sure most global or you know asset managers in general of course would would state very clearly that they are database, but it just feels like that that positioning of it as this is one just one of a number of risks. It just happens to be one that also has this kind of mega influence on um, the potential to hugely influence like how we deal with the climate the climate issue in hand. So that. Okay, that's helpful. So when you when you think about um, Ava in 2017, Ava now that kind of five year journey, what what what's changed? What's the sort of you know we think about mood music when you were first transitioning into sustainable in investment versus now? What's that shift been? Maybe in terms of you know how people talk about it, but also the participants, the drivers. What's significant for you? Sure. Um, so I think there's probably two lenses to answer that question. Firstly, through the lens of clients and how they're allocating to sustainability and to strategies that are targeting um, to support that transition to a low carbon economy. But also the second lens, I think, which which is equally important is to touch, as you've mentioned, those structural trends, which are gaining in, in momentum and some of what we're doing ourselves um, in terms of addressing those addressing those trends. So from a, from a client perspective, uh, I'd say in, in 2017 and really in 2018, predominantly the, the main way for investors to access sustainability, the most common way was through screens and through those exclusionary approaches. So in applying um, exclusions based on the business activities of a company or screening out companies that may be deemed to have controversial activities. And you would have seen screens based on revenue thresholds um, for tobacco producers and the like, or whatever the, the motivation or whatever that value was for the asset owner or, or for the wealth manager. So really, that, that was really the predominant approach back, back in 2017 and even 2018 in terms of, of sustainable investing. And what you've seen over the last four to five years, and really a tipping point, I would say, would be, be 2020, probably no, um, partly because of that, that 
huge uptick in momentum that you saw of companies and um, adopting those net zero pledges and the like, which I mentioned, but probably also the pandemic and COVID playing a role. You saw this this shift to to outcomes and to to real world outcomes in, in particular, and I think that that's so this this willingness of institutional investors and this motivation for institutional investors to invest in sustainable strategies, to invest in transition strategies, which were achieving a specific outcome rather than paper decarbonization, which of course you could achieve if you were to solely optimize for a carbon emissions metric in, in a portfolio. So that shift from, from solely exclusionary approaches to real world outcomes, either through wanting to remain invested in carbon intensive companies, wanting to invest in those companies that are supplying perhaps critical materials to, to the low carbon transition is, is really, uh, I think, a fundamental um, shift that's happened over, over the last four to five years. Um, and then the second aspect, I think, of that response is that those structural megatrends that are driving the low carbon transition, we, we talk about three. So we talk about technology and the pace of technological um, innovation that has been only increasing in, in pace. We talk about policy and the policy response and the policy driving the, the transition to a low carbon economy. And, and then we talk about investor and, and consumer preferences. And those are three structural trends that have been increasing in momentum. They were already present. In, in 2017, certainly, but they've been accelerating in, in pace. So if we think about technology, um, for example, the, the decrease that we've seen in solar um, very, very clearly over the last decade um, being a huge, huge technological innovation. And another thing I'd highlight as an example is um, the, the capacity that we now have in, in wind and solar. And recent IEA projections um, noting that we are now on track to meet the, the, the IEA scenarios of the Paris Agreement. That's, that's the pace of innovation that we're seeing in technology, I think, is, is only increasing and has increased over the, last, over the last five years. From a policy perspective, we've had the IRA which um, is, of course, transformational um, and catalyzing investment, the EU response to catalyzing that investment. Um, and then, of course, the, the consumer preferences and investor preferences, which we see translated into flows. So 2022 flows remaining resilient despite that volatility that we saw in, in those asset classes such as equity and fixed income, really. And that, that's, that's, that's encouraging that those sustainability flows remain sticky here, here in Europe. Um, so really that end investor preference also remaining a structural megatrend, which we see um, a, a driver for the long term, but also increasing a velocity versus versus 2017. Mm. Just out of interest, you know, I know, I know we're not talking specifically about how private wealth funds come to be allocated, but there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about this big kind of generational inheritance of mega wealth and how that's going to inform different investment strategies. I mean, does that, does that feel like that is already in play? I, I is, is that kind of relevant here or is it actually just all types of investors and all types of <laughs> assets are, are now kind of channeling their interest in, in this way? Sure. And I think here I'm going to put on my other hat. I actually lead the, the Women's Network um, at BlackRock across EMEA. So this is a topic which um, we discuss actually actually frequently, how that transformational and the generational transfer of wealth will will take place and what it may mean um, for for investing and for the investing landscape. So from, from that perspective, around 40% 
of, of wealth today is is held by women. And actually, um, a poll recently by, by a third party research agency noted that 52% um, of women want to want to um, invest in sustainability products. And that's versus a lower percentage of, of men. So if we think about it from that lens and that transfer of wealth, which which is underway, um, and the, the increase in that, and, and women are, are, are positioned to really benefit from that, that could have dynamics in terms of how how investors um, actually allocate in, in the coming years, specifically in the wealth space. I, I would say that that's from a wealth perspective. From an institutional perspective, the asset owners typically have net zero commitments or some type of net zero pledge. If we look at our own client base globally, 68% of our largest clients have net zero commitments, um, and that's 100% of our largest clients here in Europe. So this is really top of mind for our clients, moving from that commitment stage in, in this region to really implementation. And that's where that's where my team and my role comes into play. We're working with our clients to really transform, trans, transform their portfolios and support them in, in meeting those objectives that they may have. Well, let, let's stay on that kind of trend of uh, the institutional client base. How how has their interest shifted? I mean, you mentioned then uh, just now about the the huge amount of money that has gone into the development of wind and solar, and clearly renewables is where a lot of that interest has been historically. Where where is uh, the institutional interest shifting to? What what are you seeing there? Sure. So, so thanks, Alex. And I think I think that's coming back to the point I was making earlier around real world outcomes and the increasing importance of real world outcomes to the institutional investor base. Um, and and an additional point I'd like to make is the emergence of of these net zero frameworks. So, for example, the net zero asset owner alliance framework, the IIGCC framework, the net zero banking alliance framework, the science based target initiative, and and I can go on. So these are these are frameworks which are being developed for target users and they are developed to support that target user um, that has a specific business model to provide guidelines um, to uh, transition their portfolio to achieve net zero ambitions as, as, under the, as under the Paris Agreement. So specifically the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance is for um, pension funds, it's for insurers, asset managers can use it because that's a framework which is very much for the business model of those specific types of, of financial institutions. You also have, as an example, the Net Zero Asset Management Initiative, which is a specific framework for asset managers, and it suits better the, the business model for, for those asset managers. So you are seeing the this emergence of frameworks which are providing guiding principles to institutional investors as they seek to align their portfolios to, to net zero. Um, what I would call out though, um, is the commonality across those frameworks and really those the, the four principles I'd call out commonalities, which I think um, apply more generally as well, even for those financial institutions that may not be members of, of those um, of those frameworks. So firstly, the, the importance on financed emissions, because those are those emissions linked to the investment activity of the of the financial institution so rather those emissions linked to the operations of the institution which are decarbonized using looking at supply chains and the like these are those frameworks that are now focused on the the financed emissions those emissions that that specific financial institution is financing and then secondly um, in line with 
that is the timeline in terms of emission reduction. So the commonality across those frameworks is the recognition that actually this will take time. There are 2030 milestones, there are 2025 milestones in some in some cases, but this is a journey that we are on that requires checkpoints um, and interim targets to ultimately reach 2050. So really that, that longer timeline. But then third, thirdly, and I think interestingly, um, and particularly for this audience, is is the treatment of, of carbon intensive sectors um, and that focus on, on not wanting to have sol solely paper decarbonization of portfolios, but really to remain invested, um, to work with companies and to support them on that transition. And if we think um, incumbents are actually, in many cases, very well positioned to transform their, their business models and to emerge as, as the leaders of the future. You have, the, the transition will require a vast rewiring of the global economy. I think that that's that's well recognized. It will require a, a reworking and relooking of supply chains. It requires looking at every aspect of the, the value chain of that specific company. And in many cases, incumbents are actually very well positioned to, to, to transform their business models and to identify those technologies of the future that will be the winners going forward. So this identification um, and recognition that remaining invested in carbon-intensive companies, I think, is, is something which has emerged as quite important for institutional investors. And then lastly, engagement. And engagement seen as a critical tool in the toolbox of a financial institution, um, working with the company to support them on their transition to a low-carbon economy, be that engaging on their TCFD reporting, on the robustness of their disclosures, on how the board may be uh, implementing, assessing, evaluating physical risk, transition risk within the operations of that company. So engagement in, in many different forms. And when I say engagement, engagement being really that two-way dialogue between an investor in the company, rather than it so being, you know, we, we, from our perspective, we would not say that solely a letter sent to a company would be a, an effective engagement. It really needs to be an exchange of views on on that company strategy. So I'd say those are the four commonalities that we're seeing emerging amongst these differing frameworks, which are providing those guidelines to to institutional investors. If you if you were going to identify, I mean, those amongst those commonalities, amongst the discussions you're having, what what is the best kind of lever? Uh, right now to get institutional money really to focus in on industrial decarb we're not going to make the whole of the rest of the podcast about industry obviously but as you you brought it up you're quite right the kind of treatment of carbon intensive sectors is something that if we want to get real about decarbonization globally you know you can't ignore the 35 percent plus emissions that come from those sectors and the materials that are essential so how do we help channel more of the right money uh into into those sectors do you think probably no simple answers but give me your best your best shot <laughs> I, I don't think there, there's a simple answer to that question unfortunately um i think there there are if if we think holistically around the tools that are available um to transform and to move that the the the, the economy to to a lower carbon environment. Um, policy obviously needs to be a key lever here. Um, and we are seeing developments with the IRA, we are seeing developments with the EU. But I think the, the policy um, embracing disclosures um, and providing um, a, an investment environment, which is welcoming to companies, is, is certainly a lever which we would say is key. So policy really needing to take, take the front seat here. I think from a finance perspective, um, there is 
there is significant pools of capital now that are looking to to allocate to to climate solutions and and to to newer technologies. Um, if we think about um, emerging markets, for example, we would say there's around a trillion that needs to be invested in annually to to emerging markets to support that transition to a low carbon economy. Um, and the challenge with with emerging markets, of course, is is country risk and the the heightened risk associated to investing in in, in these countries, which may not fit the risk return profile of of institutional investors. And not all of that risk can be diversified away through financial engineering. So at, at, at our firm, we do have one. Uh, uh, one blended finance vehicle where we partnered with um, three, three, three governments um, and the Grantham Institute uh, to catalyze investment into emerging markets. Um, but these, these are these are vehicles which which um, require that they're more complex to launch. They're more complex to manage. Um, and they're more complex to deploy capital from than, than traditional funding vehicles. So I think the finance sector itself also has a role to play alongside the policy policy sector. I think that the one point, and perhaps to, to answer your question um, more directly, would be around disclosures and reporting. So increasing transparency um, is fundamental to construct portfolios and to construct strategies to catalyze that investment. Investors need data. They need data which they can identify as financially material. And they need data to identify which companies uh, are doing good, which companies are orienting their own business models. So I think um, robust reporting and robust data and robust disclosures is, is, is key. Well, let's pick up on that, that data piece then. Um, because, I mean, you, you obviously kicked off this whole podcast talking about the kind of the focus that BlackRock brings, like really rooted in in-depth research analysis. So what what is the data that your investors need? And perhaps another way of looking at it is what, what is the data that we need to leave behind right now that is not helping this, you know, the, the flow of capital? So what's needed and what do we definitely need to be getting rid of or, or what's getting in our way? Sure. So I think that the first point I would make um, is is around financial materiality. So for for investors, data of course needs to be aggregated into metrics that are then decision useful, um, so that an investor can identify those metrics which will impact the valuation of a company over the long term. So I think the decision usefulness of, of data and of metrics in particular is 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 incredibly important. So I think one, one point I would underwrite is that no single metric can can tell the full story. So if we think about the metrics that are available now, broadly you could categorize them into two categories. The first being backwards looking metrics, so carbon intensity, absolute carbon footprint, um, emissions, um, and then the forward-looking metrics, which are um, those that are perhaps more binary, such as SBTI, science-based targets, um, benchmarks, um, and forward-looking ITR, implied temperaturized. So really those metrics which, which are forward-looking, and they both have a use. So those backward-looking metrics, they're easier to measure, they're easier for investors to understand, and they reflect real-world emissions that are there today. So they certainly have, have a use case. Um, but they may talk towards uh, they may have some sectoral regional biases. They may have lower diversification in the number given the data source data points that are available. If we look at forward-looking metrics, they may be binary in some instances, um, but they do consider company targets. 
and you know often they're based on on current emissions data and they they avoid that sectoral regional bias which which may be inherent in those backward looking data sources so i think that the key point that that i would make is that no single metric tells the story it is the the how will that data point and how will that metric be used in the investment process which which is key um, from our perspective, um, perhaps I'll, I'll touch on a tool that we've used to, to bring that, that to life. We've developed a tool called Aladdin Climate. Aladdin is our risk management system where we house um, a vast number of, of data points related to sustainability and other. It's where we, it's it's the integrated um, framework where risk management across whole portfolio is conducted investment processes, workflows is built into what we call Aladdin. And we've built a tool called Aladdin Climate. And that is using um, data sources uh, to identify the physical risk and transition risk and implied temperaturized metric for issuers um, that can be then calculated and assessed with a number of different variables to calculate the underlying impact on the valuation of the issuer and it can be aggregated up. So we've partnered with different firms to build out our Aladdin Climate tool, um, to build out the physical location data, to assess physical risk, to build out the, 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 the models and the transition models to assess those transition risks. But ultimately that's a tool that we use for TCFD reporting. It feeds into our climate capital market assumptions. Um, and it is a tool that we have to really be able to make use of the data and identify those decision useful data points at the issuer level, which of course is so important for investor. We need to understand the risks, we need to understand the scenarios, how that may unfold under under different scenarios. Um, I think, and to, to, the, to the last part of your question around what we may need to not stay um, attached to at, at the moment, I think what is extremely promising is the work that the, the International Sustainability Standards Board is doing at the moment, aggregating some of these differing frameworks. And I think that aggregation is, is, is critical for companies who are often faced with onerous reporting requirements and so many different frameworks actually, which they, which they need to need to report to now. And so that aggregation that is now being um, done through the ISSB, the thinking at the ISSB, setting these international standards, I think will, will, will be a pivotal and important tool um, to help companies, but also investors alike uh, with a more standardized framework to, to data and to reporting. Yeah, well, I'm, when you say, when you talk about that, I think of a conversation I had in the last couple of weeks, actually, with one of our industrial clients. And one of her really biggest challenges at the moment is the volume of requests they're getting from all sorts of stakeholders for ever so slightly different types of data that get have to be produced in a certain way. And then at the same time, there are other external agencies that are basically, you know, reporting on them either with or without the data from the company and she's like this the, the issue of data is that it sounds like it should be simple like just give us the data and tell us how you're doing she's like but but we're facing such different types of requests for similar sets of data but then also this issue of people reporting on us but without using our data like it's, it feels like feels like it's creating um well it's creating a lot of work but it's also creating potential risk for them actually and how they're able to source the right partners and and financial arrangements I, I thought I was kind of fascinating that that sort of the idea of this kind of supposedly you know should be quite simple we just need data we need to understand how you're performing but it's not not a that the same question is not being asked even though perhaps the same data point is the ultimate goal of those different questions it's sort of a yeah fascinating mess <laughs> for, for them to be in it felt like um 
Okay, well, let, let's move on then and, and have a think about ESG metrics. Been a, a lot of discussion in different geographies recently about you know the role of them and what the right ones are. I mean, there, there's there's another of the classic Cameron broad questions for a podcast victim. Sorry, but what are the right ESG metrics? Do you think when when I say that to you, what does that mean, and and how would you determine those? Yeah, and I think I think it's a great question. I mean, I, I'd probably start by giving the the overall picture of the the sustainable investing landscape to kind of bring that down into how these metrics are used. So at, at BlackRock, we manage six hundred and fifty five billion in, in sustainable assets at the end of Q one. So it's 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 a big number, um, and, and the overall industry is 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 growing exponentially. So this is an industry which is growing at pace, and and in the in the asset number we have over four hundred sustainable products and sustainable strategies. Now what that what that means is that those strategies may be using different data points depending on the index construction, depending on on if we've co-developed that product with the client, depending on the preference of the client who may have a preference for a specific um, provider um, or, or the like. So there may be different reasons why we are using different data sources. They may be best suited for the specific exposure, for for example. So we do use um, a, a wide variety of, of data, data sources and metrics across the firm. What we have done and where we have a commonality um, is in, in, in a few areas. So firstly, um, we have reported certain metrics across all of our index funds that are in scope globally and actually across all of our mutual funds. That, that are in scope globally for some of these metrics. And we have the wacky, for instance, the weighted average carbon intensity as a metric, which is on our website, so it can be can be seen by all. We have the implied temperature rise metric. Um, we have ESG quality scores. So we have we have several metrics which we have on all of our mutual funds globally um, to really increase that transparency, um, given that's where we've seen um, client demand for those metrics and we see in particular the weighted average carbon intensity metric it's it's one where we've seen you know quite quite a lot of significant client demand wanting wanting that metric and in particular understanding how, how that evolves over time so that's one place that we have some commonality in approach and the other area where we have some commonality in approach with regard to with regard to metrics is with regard to uh, our own proprietary scoring framework which we've constructed um, and that uses once again a large number of data points as source data, but it aggregates up into 270 KPIs and ultimately into ESNG scores, so pillar scores, to provide a score at the, the overall company level. It's looking at financial materiality. So concretely, it looks, for instance, at Glassdoor data, and it looks at the retention of employees in glass, on, on Glassdoor as we think there is um, correlation with company turnover. Um, so it's looking, and, and each of these descriptors is, is underpinned by a, by a vast body of research to um, support the evidencing of, of that financial materiality. Um, we've, we've used machine learning techniques to fill the gap where data may, may not be um, available, where you may have some incomplete data sets. So think about it, how Netflix recommends um, uh, movies or how Amazon predicts what customers are doing. We, we can do the same if there are incomplete data sets. Um, but that, that's another use case where we've used innovative techniques to really identify the, the financial materiality 
of a data set to make a decision useful for an investor. So I think the 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 the, the broad answer will be um, to, to the broader question. Um, there isn't one single data point or one single metric which which will tell the whole story. It really is. It's it's a it's a need to look holistically at the different metrics and and identify what is this decision useful for that particular strategy that is being built or constructed. Okay, so um, a bit of a you know a bit of a, a different kind of question for you. If we I guess so far we at least from my perspective we're sort of broadly talking about the more developed markets of uh, well you're you're focused on EMEA I'm focused on you know uh, Europe and North America, but in in more emerging markets or normally we might call them you know riskier regions or, or so forth what are we seeing coming to those riskier projects or, or regions and and yeah what frameworks and tools are emerging sure so i think um the the first point i would highlight is the the recognition that the emerging markets um account for around two-thirds of, of global emissions so actually that capital that needs to flow into emerging markets in in to to really decarbonize the global economy it's it's critical um and indeed if we think from a whole portfolio perspective from a, a sophisticated institutional investor um that wants to achieve real world outcomes allocating to investments in emerging markets or investments which may um, decarbonize or some of the infrastructure in emerging markets or technologies that may support the decarbonization within it within the emerging market is it it's 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 it, it is a priority given simply the nature of needing to shift the whole global economy to low carbon to that low carbon trajectory rather than solely investing in the region which that institutional investor may 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 be in. So, firstly, from a client perspective, there certainly is that that um, increasingly that that desire to invest in those in in areas where they can make that most the most impact and achieve those real world outcomes. I think the challenge comes once again to to de-risking these projects, um, and and public budgetary resources have have been shown to be successful in the past to really catalyze that private capital and to really absorb some of those losses that 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 will that have deterred private investors from allocating into those markets um, but more of these partnerships um, are, are required because it, thinking holistically the institutional and structural reforms that are required in in emerging markets to de-risk at scale probably won't happen in the timeline as required under the paris agreement so more of these blended finance vehicles um, and ability to shield um, institutional investors from the higher risks of some of these projects is 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 could, could be a good tool to to really mobilize that capital and really de-risk from an institutional investor perspective to enable them to allocate that capital where it's needed. Whenever I whenever we talk either internally as a team or with clients about kind of emerging markets or higher risk markets, the, the other thing that is also true is that and you've already mentioned this earlier that is the need for policy. So how how can funds flow more easily in regions where we're, we're just not really seeing that same commitment or drive to put in place policy, let alone the incentives that you would hope would come with that policy? What what do you make of that? And I think ultimately it depends on on climate on on client demand and on investor demand. And if we think about our role as as a fiduciary, our role is to really build those products where clients are 
our clients are motivated and to meet the needs of our clients, we're investing in line with those investment guidelines of, of clients. So I think that impetus really needs to come from our client base and from the uh, institutional investors. Um, and, and our role is to provide those solutions to enable them to really access those those thematics and an example of, of an innovative solution which which we developed just a few years ago was a partnership that we undertook with um, a sovereign wealth fund and there um, we partnered with a sovereign wealth fund who had climate tech capabilities um, and the partnership we, we've launched a new product a new fund called decarbonization partners and that is a, a fund which is investing in in climate technology in growth equity so it's at that growth equity space it's higher up than your, your venture capital um, area of the capital stack. And it's investing in those innovative solutions to really um, catalyze that investment to a low carbon economy. So I think from our perspective, we, we, we partner with institutional investors, with sovereign wealth funds that have that desire to build solutions and to fund solutions to, 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 trans, to transform or to catalyze that investment to, to where it's needed. Was that just from memory, that was Temasek? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was that's right yes reading about that really fascinating to see that that coming to life um so so with with that that, that example of the uh, collaboration with temasek with what you're saying about this kind of appetite for real world outcomes uh even in higher risk regions what does that let's like flip that around what does that mean for the people projects technologies that are trying to attract that capital in those markets what what more do they need to be doing to sort of really be a magnet for for this kind of this this funding appetite that that you're seeing Sure. That, that, of course, is a, it's a fantastic question. I think um, industry collaboration and building that network is, is key. From our perspective, um, we've launched um, a, a new initiative we announced it at the back end of last year called, called Transition Capital. And we are looking to bring together, um, from our perspective, we, 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 we provide capital solutions across that entire capital spec to, to companies. And we want to um, ensure that we're servicing companies with that full range of capital that we have that we have available to support them in investing in the projects that they may, may need um, to invest in, especially in particular in that scale-up area. So those projects that typically have um, no, low or no technology risk, but aren't yet at that infrastructure equity risk return profile. So we're looking at bringing together our capabilities in a more structured way um, and to um, develop and to catalyze more investment into into that transition area. From a company perspective, I think that it's, it's very much building that network um, and ensuring robust disclosures, robust reporting and, and transparency on, on operations. Okay, well, let's um, kind of bring this, bring this to a wrap then. I mean, I really feel like we've covered so much ground. I'm going to have to pull you back in for another part two uh, another time. But but when you think about you know where we've come from in the last five years, you sort of talked us through that that shift in attention on the types of areas of investment, the the shift in demand for different types of data and metrics. Where's your attention turning now? Like what 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 are you looking forward to? What's the sort of next either trend or 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 you know driver that that you guys are, are trying to respond to? Sure. So I think that the first trend is very much servicing the sustainability um, and climate commitments and climate needs of our of of the, the the client base that we have. So allocating to climate solutions 
implementing um, climate into portfolios, providing the data, providing the tools and the metrics to our institutional clients remains priority number one. So developing those strategies to support them. Um, and then priority number two um, would be natural capital and biodiversity. We see this very much as an emerging um, topic of interest for institutional investors. Um, of course, with the Task Force for Nature-Related um, Non-Financial Disclosures um, coming out with their recommendations in September, um, we expect this to really accelerate as, as institutional investors begin to think around implementation of natural capital, of biodiversity in, into portfolios. So I think that the two topics remain very much sustainability and climate in particular, um, and then secondly, natural capital and biodiversity. And for you personally, like what what do your what do you what's your bet for how the next 12, 18 months are going to unfold? What do you think you're going to be focused on most? I think it will be those two themes. Um, I certainly think it will be servicing our largest asset owner clients and institutional clients in in implementing those those particular um, imperatives across across the portfolios. Um, and then I think um, hopefully we'll see more um more awareness um and and greater adoption around biodiversity as well in the industry so i think those two themes are certainly going to be my areas of focus well ava i mean as i said at the beginning um yeah i've been wanting to have you on as my guest for some time and i feel like i have milked an enormous amount of content out of you so thank you you've been very generous with your time and it's been really interesting to hear from you thanks again for joining me thank you alex delighted at Jano Media, we recognize that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society. Whether that's video, live streams, photography or podcasts, partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage, inform and inspire. Reach out to us today.